Heavenly Father, I would pray this morning that those who hear this show will feel touched in their hearts and that they might feel the Holy Spirit pour out thy love and peace and that they might use the message contained in this podcast to help them understand things better and that they will understand that Thou art a never-ending source of love. And we pray that the song, Come Thou Found, would also convey how we are all strangers on this earth. And Jesus Christ is the way for us to find our rock of stability and hope And that as we learn of his ways and try to model our lives after his commandments, it is there that we can find peace and happiness that we are all searching for. And I pray that this might be so. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. The scripture, 2 Nephi chapter 2, verse 11, is found in the Book of Mormon. And it is, for it must needs be that there is an opposition in all things. If not so, my firstborn in the wilderness, righteousness could not be brought to pass. Neither wickedness, neither holiness, nor misery, neither good nor bad. Wherefore, all things must needs be a compound in one. Wherefore. If it should be one body, it must needs remain as dead, having no life, neither death, nor corruption, nor incorruption, happiness, nor misery, neither sense, nor insensibility. My song today is the Sally DeFord version of Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Come thou found of every blessing to my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing Call for songs of loudest praise Teach me some melodious sonnet Sung by flaming tongues above My Ebenezer, hither by thy help I'm come. 
and I hope by thy good measure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to me, the God I love. my heart take and seal it seal it for thy cords above seal it for thy cords Dr. Leonard Horowitz's 528 transposition website to put that backing track that Sally DeFord created and shared so generously on the internet for any singer to use for free uh, into 528 hertz frequency so that all of my songs are accompanied in 528 and I share it with you today most humbly. I struggle to sing because I'm on oxygen. And so with my phrasing, it's hard to sing a whole phrase because I run out of air. But I love to sing because I think of it as a form of therapy for my lungs. It forces me to use my diaphragm and I um, fill up my whole, whole lung capacity when I'm singing my songs. So it's all good. So today I thought I would take the time to share my SRA healing story. I um, was interviewed by Nathan Stolfman at Lift the Veil in June. And during the months of June and July, I engaged in six weeks of hardcore citizen journalism. And... I um, dove deep into a satanic ritual abuse case that's bubbling up right now in Utah. And I'm not going to take too much time to go into the nitty gritty details 
of that case. I shared the links to everything, all of the work I did in the show page, and you can click over and kind of peruse that at your leisure. But for six weeks, I was on fire with a spirit of righteous indignation and fervor determined to get the story captured because it has been with great frustration over these last 10 years that I have observed that when a victim of these crimes and or a journalist steps out into the fray to expose these sorts of crimes, uh, they very quickly get squashed in the media and um, kicked off the internet. And so I felt like it was important that somebody take on the daily task of recording everything that was said online about this case. And so I just gave myself the assignment and went to work. And I used my blog at Substack to capture all of the video, all of the audio. And um, Nathan himself did what's called a grandma request, G-R-A-M-A, to the Provo Police Department in Utah, requesting all of the records tied to this case. And this is like a, a Freedom of Information Act type request. And this information had just quietly been sitting at the Provo Police Department for years. The judge had dismissed the case without prejudice. And what that means is when there's a case that they just don't have enough to prosecute with, they can dismiss it without prejudice because they believe there's something there but they're just not quite ready to finish it. And so this case had been sitting for years. And anyone, uh, any journalist was free to go in and, and get the evidence. And so a journalist named Adam Herbitz in Utah did a grandma request and obtained these documents. And Nathan decided to do it too. And I told him if he hadn't done it, I was going to. And um, he passed all the information on to me, all the victim statements, the video and audio files. And I published them on my blog and at my Dropbox. And from that day to this, there's been about 2,000 people who've clicked over and obtained those files. And my feeling is this case in particular needs some sunlight and the disinfecting power of uh, having a real hearing in the media and on the internet and in private chats. And everyone, it feels like everyone is so afraid of the people involved who are inc incredibly wealthy and connected that they're really nervous about going public with uh, this information and the story. And so there have been a few brave journalists tied to the Epoch Times, covered it. Adam Herbitz has been all over it. Uh, certain journalists in Utah have stepped up. And there have been some other indie journalists, Kathy Fox at the Foxy Fox Substack, 
Nathan at Lift the Veil was so brave in the beginning, doing some significant storytelling with his podcast and on his Substack, And so uh, there were just, oh, Derek Bros at um, Last American Vagabond did some awesome reporting. But the story's been, it, the last few weeks has been really quiet. And so um, outside of getting some, some requests to cease and desist from various people, um, I haven't felt particularly threatened I do, you know, sometimes wonder what's around the corner for me and my family because I'm the one who published all the documents. But as I told Nathan in the inter interview he did with me on his podcast, I um, the link of which is in the show page, um, I feel like I have nothing to lose. I feel like if they manage to kill me, which is what they do, and have done to other victims who speak out. I'm prepared to die. I don't really care whether I live or die. I know if I die, I'm going straight into the arms of my beloved savior, Jesus Christ. And that is that is not a, place, a bad place to be. I'm actually looking forward to that. And if I live, I plan to live free and not afraid. I, there won't be any anonymous books or anonymous articles or um, me ducking and hiding from my life. I plan to go to church. I plan to participate in my community and go visit my grandchildren and live out my days knowing that the potential for some serious retribution could be mine for my willingness to publish these particular documents. But I believe Heavenly Father is all-powerful, and he can protect me and um, my family and keep us safe. He's done so to this point in my life. I'm 54 years old. It's kept me safe. There have been times when I've experienced a little bit of um, blowback here and there for my activism, and that has been very difficult for me and for my family to deal with, but I'm still here. I'm still alive. I'm still breathing. And as a victim of similar crimes, I feel passionate about doing whatever is possible to help the victims. So my show today is, ded is dedicated to all of you out there who carry similar wounds, who have been trifled with, especially when you were infants and small children who grew up in families that were compromised, like I believe my family was compromised, this show is dedicated to you. And mostly, I, I want to use this show to share my healing journey, because when you are filled with so much distress, all you want is to just feel better or die. It's kind of either or. It's like, I don't know if I can stand the sensations in my mind and in my body right now. I need relief. I need something to change so that I can move forward with my life. Or, you know, I'll go hang with the angels and Jesus in heaven. It really is that stark for those of us who have been tortured and programmed 
to be obedient and do the bidding of our handlers. So I'm going to just lay out my story. It's, it's pretty dark stuff. So trigger warning. <laughs> I figure if you saw in the show title SRA story, uh, that would either make you want to come listen or it might chase you away. And all I can say is um, my story is my story. And, you know, here it is. So I was born in 1968 in Royal Oak, Michigan at Beaumont Hospital. I was my parents' fifth child. They had had three little boys and my sibling just older than me died in womb, in my mother's womb. And I was the fifth baby. And I don't have any proof of this. It's just my understanding of how these things work in families and my own uh, spiritual nudges from the Lord, but I believe my parents were forced to sacrifice their fourth child. And this is the way that these satanic networks capture those who do their bidding. They compel them, force them, bully them into killing one of their own children and once a couple does that, uh, they're much more malleable in terms of controlling them. And I believe this is what happened to my older sibling. I don't know if it was a boy or a girl. But I remember my paternal grandma, we called her Graham, telling me that she saw my mother the day after she lost this baby. And it didn't look like she had a friend in the world. That's how, that's how Graham put it. She looked like she didn't have a friend in the world. And that was an interesting way for Graham to put it because my beautiful, wonderful mother being too compelled to do such a heinous act with her own child must have shattered her in many different ways. And I believe my parents were part of the MK Ultra programming that took place on military bases and in certain schools when they were growing up. And the cult that runs these types of networks, which is worldwide, recognized that in capturing my parents who had already been messed with as little children, they could capitalize on that particular union and create something intergenerational with all of the eight children that my parents had. Because they understand the power of intergenerational trauma. I believe my dad grew up in a family, and I know he grew up in a family because he told me that had systemic sexual abuse, incest. The adults were raping the children. And my grandfather, my paternal grandfather, who my grand, grandmother divorced in her 50s, was a known pedophile and a raging alcoholic. And as my dad said, a very, very violent man. And when, when my parents moved back to Detroit, 
in the 60s, they had three little boys. And my dad said to my mother, these children will never be alone with my father. Because he knew who his father was and he wanted to protect his kids. So that's the heart of my pedophile father when he was a young husband and father. He wanted to protect us from his dad. What he couldn't do was protect us from this network that, they, that he joined. And how these things work, and this is illustrated in the movie Eyes Wide Shut. I need to get a drink. <clears throat> is that somebody somewhere is hosting a party. And out of curiosity or wanting to fit in or hang out with the elites or just because of curiosity, uh, someone infiltrates a party like Tom Cruise did in the movie or someone's invited to a party. And they feel so amazed that a little insignificant couple who's just kind of quietly living their lives are invited to this party where a lot of very sophisticated, connected people are going to be. And this seduces them into thinking, well, what do you know? I've arrived. I am, I am going to be hanging out at a party with all of these very cool people. And this will open up opportunities for business and culture and op just, you know, never ending um, opportunities. That's the word opportunities for advancement in life. And so my parents are invited to one of these parties. And I believe at that party is where they were compromised. I don't know if that's where my mom was compelled to sacrifice her child. I suspect at the party something happened. Video, photos, this is what they do. This is what Jeffrey Epstein and Slane Maxwell did. Is they capture evidence that can be used to extort and bribe and threaten and control the people who've been caught in their nets. Not saying Jeffrey Epstein did this to my family. There were others in the Detroit area who were part of this network. I believe people tied to my church. I am a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, a Mormon. People tied to my church, tied to my community and my school were involved in these networks. I also believe they had a presence in local business, state business, and especially in the arts, the performing arts. Michigan is a hub for some of the best training of artists in the world. University of Michigan, the other music schools, the public schools and private schools have this deep devotion to teaching the next generation of performers. There's a camp up in northern Michigan called Interlochen that when I was coming up in the performing arts in high school, the kids who obtained scholarships to go to that camp during the summer were treated with like godlike awe. You were good enough to go to Interlochen. Oh my gosh, 
everybody wanted to go to that camp for their training, whether it was an orchestra or band, singing, acting, dance, whatever. They wanted to go to Interlaken. I wanted to go to Interlaken. And we come to find out one of the people who was running Interlaken is a pedophile that recently came out. And so I believe the performing arts have been captured for a long time. We've all heard stories coming out of Hollywood of what, what's happened there to the child actors, especially, but um, lots of dark stuff going on with those who are gifted, literally gifted by God with talents in singing and dancing, especially music. And these talents have been flipped and used to further the work of evil. And I, I feel like I'm on a mission to help free my fellow artists, my fellow singers. Satan knows how powerful of a medium that music is. And he has sought to compromise it and twist it, contort it for his purposes since the earth began. He has pied pipered his followers away from family and home and love and life off to the cities to engage in all sorts of heinous acts since the time of our first parents, Adam and Eve. And it says in the scriptures that Cain followed Satan simply because he loved him more than God. And he, he was felt justified in murdering his own brother. And he's off living this Babylonian lifestyle that eventually it evolved <clears throat> into Sodom and Gomorrah type hellscape where when a couple of angels show up in town, everybody shows up and like, where, where are those guys we saw? We want to have sex with them. That's what they lived for. It was the orgies. And nothing has changed. You know, nothing has changed. 6,000 years of human life on this planet and nothing has changed. And I believe, and this is this comes from my education from the Book of Mormon, that these networks, these satanic networks, have operated since the foundation of the earth and since Satan started bashing around, messing with humanity. In the Book of Mormon, there's a very specific portion that talks about the cult. They called themselves the Gadianton robbers, how they operate, how they function. And I believe I was tortured using those types of tactics as a young child. And for whatever reason, whether it was because of my singing ability or my uh, performing ability or the placement I had in my family as being passed through a womb, my mother's womb, that had been traumatized and tortured with the death of my older sibling. Uh, for whatever reason, I believe I was identified early on as someone who could potentially serve the purposes of this network, either through music or or acting, or even just as a breeder, that my children could also be messed with by these same people 
and each generation, you know, they jack up the the efforts, at least they have in the past. I don't know how much this is still going on, but um, sucks to be you guys. I, I flipped and, you know, was able to get out of your clutches, shall we say. And now I'm using all of my extra energy and efforts to expose them because that's what needs to happen. I'm not going to go into the details of how they programmed me, but I was compelled to commit a crime when I was seven years old. When I was a teenager, I was impregnated twice, and both of those babies were used for sacrifice. Those memories have been the hardest for me to process, and I've spent the last two years putting it all back together and healing from that. I, I ballooned up to 300 and 65 pounds while I was remembering this stuff. Just like a puffer fish, you know. My body went into full protection mode as I processed out these memories. Still feeling kind of fragile around that and those traumas. These two children, I was forced to abort. And uh, over the last year, I've lost 50 pounds, which tells me that my body is reconciling and um, doing better with uh, processing that trauma. And then I was taken to uh, certain homes and places, uh, including Upland Hills Farm, which was a place I went on a school trip as a child in uh, Auburn Heights, Michigan. And there the programming continued. The spinning, the um, I, like I said, I'm not going to go into the details. There's other places where you can go read details of what they do to children. And, and the victim statements that I published, there's a lot of detail. I don't want to talk about it. I don't like to revisit it. It's difficult for me to even have it kind of roiling through my mind. I start to panic. So I'm not going to go into the details of what they did to program me. I believe I had what they call diva programming to be an influencer and i would strongly make the case that the influencers you are currently seeing on the internet bloggers instagrammers i believe many of them also had this influencer programming based on what i've seen and observed on their sites so I get married, I have my family, four kids, and my brother dies of a drug overdose. And during his funeral, I was in my uncle's home and he made a disparaging remark about my brother who had just passed away. And it was that remark from that man that started the wheels rolling of um, my own memories starting to return. I was devastated with the, the loss of my brother Dave and in that morning space my brain finally felt ready to start reconciling this is 2021 and what victims will often express is that it's when they are in a loving supportive relationship with their spouse with good things happening in their lives 
and they feel strong physically, it's then that they're ready to start processing their memories. And this was definitely the case for me. I, um, I did have four little children to take care of, but my body and my mind realized that it was a good time to start processing this out. And I don't know that there's ever an ideal time. I've known, I've, I've heard victims say, I'm so glad I was able to access it and move it through my body before I had kids, because I think I'll be a better parent having dealt with this before that my children show up. And I believe that's true. And so those of you who are older, who perhaps have been struggling with, with healing and feel like you're, you know, probably not healthy enough to have a family, you know, don't despair, don't give up. Even if you're in their thirties and forties, there's still hope that you could have a family and a normal, healthy life, even after all this wreckage has messed with you up to this point. Um, you don't necessarily have to be in your 30s and 40s to begin healing this. Uh, there are many victims who remember, always remembered what happened to them, even though they're tortured into not remembering. There are others who start to remember when they're teenagers or in their tw early 20s. And if that's you, great, run with that. Acknowledge it. This is real. This happened to me. Face it squarely. You'll be so much happier and healthier if you can look at it just bluntly rather than run away from whatever it is and dope your, yourself up with psychiatric meds to deal with the symptoms. I personally believe you'll have a better life if you just face it sober. And I'm so pleased to announce that I have done my 21 years of healing. My brother died in 2001 mostly sober. You know, I'm, I'm a Mormon, so I don't drink alcohol. But I do confess to getting sugar drunk occasionally when emotions overwhelm. And what that looks like for me is just lots and lots of chocolate and sugar. And it gives me enough of a buzz that I'm able to detach a little bit from the pain. And so uh, every once in a while, I don't do it every day. But on anniversary days of when certain events happened or uh, like in April, I was gang raped and uh, when I was 21, I always know to just kind of like um, emotionally prepare myself, create a window a week or two around Easter when I just kind of take care of myself, don't really plan anything and kind of hide in my cave, my bedroom away from the world. And just, you know, I never know what's going to come up around that but I just kind of nurture myself. And sometimes I do get sugar drunk to just, you know, again, kind of take the edge off. I don't use psychiatric meds. I did use them for a year after I had my initial breakout psychosis when I was 21. But I only did that because I was ordered by a judge to eat that crap. And when I found a psychiatrist who helped me get off those meds in 1991, um, she helped me wean one by one off of all the meds. I was determined not to go back to the drugs because I did not feel like the symptom relief I got from them was worth the side effects. The side effects were horrifying. 
I, I was completely numb sexually. And this is so common in people who take antidepressants. You become frigid. And who wants that? Now that's something to be depressed about. Your body doesn't function normally. And hello, newly married young mother and wife. Welcome to hell. Not only do you have all of these other symptoms, oh, we're not going to let you enjoy sex and this thing that you've looked forward to your whole life, having a normal, healthy, happy sexual relationship. Yeah, that's gone for you because of the drugs. You know, how many of you on antidepressants would have ever gotten on them if you knew that that was what was going to happen to you, men or women? How many of you would have done that? You know, wrecked havoc with so many marriages, so many people, not worth whatever cure they claim. And then just last month, there's this article coming out going, oh, by the way, uh, there is no such thing as a chemical imbalance. Just so you know, after 40 years of telling you, oh, it's just the chemicals are off in your brain and these drugs are going to fix it. It was a lie. It was always a lie. Read Peter Bruggen's books. His books are the best. And Anne Blake Tracy, her Prozac book, excellent. Read those books. Find out what happened to you. And then if you can, try to wean off your meds. If you can, I think you'll live a happier life if you do. I certainly have been grateful to not be on the meds. I don't think they did me any good. But when someone's in a mania or a psychosis or just completely bonkers, the meds can calm their minds. And so I acknowledge the symptom relief. I do. Especially when someone's in an emergency. Yes, you can help them come out of that crazy space with the drugs. But for long-term healing, for long-term wellness, that is where you need to look to nutrition, exercise, essential oils, prayer, priesthood blessings, nurturing yourself with the good word of God, and being careful and cautious about the content you put in your mind. Music, movies, do you have any addictions? If you have addictions to anything, I would point you in the direction of liver and gallbladder cleansing. Just Google it. How do I cleanse my liver and my gallbladder? Holda Clark was the person who came up with this protocol for moving physical debris out of the liver and gallbladder. I have done these cleanses dozens and dozens of times. And as I did them, I cleared this detrius out of my body that really messes with you when it comes to addictions. And so uh, it's just a simple physical thing you can do with grapefruit juice and olive oil and just a little bit of fasting to give you an edge, just give you an edge up. And so instead of ravaging your liver with psychiatric meds or booze, or whatever you're using as your addiction to help you cope, flip that and cleanse your liver. Heal your liver, your gallbladder, your pancreas. All of these internal organs are so important to your mental health. The Chinese have a saying that all 
illness begins in the stomach and they're right. And when you are in that shock state that so many of us struggle with because of the trauma and the torture, it is very hard to digest your food properly. And so I've spent so much time researching and then doing the things that would cleanse out that inner vessel of my digestive tract and then put into my body the most nourishing healing foods that I could obtain. And the one thing my husband and I have done that has been a legacy now for our kids and our grandkids is to grab back our power around our kitchen work and our food. We spend so much time working, creating these meals that are the most nutritious meals you can have. Lots of live foods, juicing, whole grains, fresh ground grains. We cook our own beans and rice, sourdough, salads. We do eat animal foods sparingly. And I, I am a vegetarian most of the time during the summers. In the winters, I like to have me a good hearty chili. But, you know, a little bit of animal foods here and there. And this is where I have found my health. Sugar, sugar drunks noted. Yes, I do use junk food and chocolate occasionally to help me with my symptoms. But most of the time, we are eating whole foods for all three of our meals, hot, fresh. Um, and we spend a lot of money on organic and uh, foods from the farmer's market and food shares. I'd rather spend money on that than drugs. You know, I just don't take drugs. And I don't go to the doctor almost ever. I, the only time I go to the doctors is when I have a breathing emergency that I can't fix myself. And I usually try. And then sometimes I just have to go. Or I need to re-up my meds. I do have to have an EpiPen with me all the time. And I use an inhaler and uh, prednisone to help me if I, if I get too bad with my breathing. But I almost never use that. I just have it in the house in case of an emergency to kind of carry the day until I can get professional help. So for these 21 years since I started remembering, I have systematically and as fast as my brain and my body could process it, I've processed out, processed out what I believe is all of the abuse. The satanic ritual stuff, the family pattern, sexual abuse, and then the various other traumas tied to, to me being programmed to, be, to being one of their influencers. And during these 21 years, we had our fifth child. He's turning 20 this year. We were busy raising teenagers. I was involved at church and in my community. I did have another hospitalization in 2012 where I was there for 12 days. I had started to remember the ritual abuse and was incredibly suicidal. And I checked myself in because I just didn't want my kids to see me in that state of mind. And so, um, and I, I felt like I needed to be on suicide watch and I did not want my husband to have to do that. 
So I went in and had some excellent care from the local mental hospital. They had me take a few meds while I was there. <laughs> Even just like a few pills of Wellbutrin and Abilify. I shut down sexually again for six months. I stopped taking the meds as soon as I got out of the hospital. But again, this sexual side effect that was so horrifying. And I think so many people who've been sexually abused take the antidepressants, the antipsychotics, and they believe that they become frigid because of the abuse, when in fact, they have just become frigid because of the drugs. And again, not helpful when you're suicidal and depressed to be shut down like that. Not helpful at all. So please tuck that in the back of your minds, whether you're, you're using the psychiatric meds yourself or a loved one or a friend, you know, this is reality. This is the impact these drugs have on our bodies. And a, a well-functioning body, and I'm talking sexually, male or female, is a sign of health. That's one of your greatest signs of health, both physical and mental, as if your body is functioning, functioning normally. So grasp your sexuality back. Don't let your abusers steal one more hour of your life by turning you into a, you know, a newt. You're completely, uh, you're, you're a eunuch and just kick to the curb with your procreative powers. Don't let them steal that from you too. As you get more physically healthy and wean off of your medications, you can grasp back a healthy, normal sexual life. That is my witness and my testimony. And that's some real power. I've added to that uh, getting into orgasmic childbirth, which is husband and wife alone in their own home, giving birth to their child in orgasmic and sexual autonomy. Uh, there is a growing awareness, especially in the female side of the population, that it is not only possible to give birth to our children in a gush of orgasmic love, it's doable. People are doing it all over the world as they become educated about what is possible for their bodies. And when you line up a husband and wife ecstatic birth conducted in the privacy of their own home with the current medical nightmare in our hospitals, um, that's some serious dysfunction rippling out into our society with all of these managed, drugged, and surgical births. I just feel overwhelmed with horror when I think about what we are allowing our young women to experience when they have their babies. Horror. When you compare it to what's possible and even desirable in family life. When a mom gives birth to a baby in the sanctity of her own home, 
privately, autonomously. The husband never has to feel any of that guilt. Economically, there's no question that this is better for family life. And that baby bonding with its own mother and father in the sanctity of their bedroom, alone, nobody messing with them, nobody interfering in the oxytocin rush that has just hit that marriage, that has just engulfed that child. That's some serious function in our dysfunctional world and our dysfunctional relationships. And having been an observer and participant of this phenomenon of husband and wife home birth for decades, I can see that the couples who grasp their autonomy and their sexuality back from the doctors and the pill pushers and the surgeons and the midwives, honestly, and give birth alone, there is so much joy that is just waiting for all of us once we grasp this and make it reality. And fortunately, many, many families are quietly doing this in their own homes, their own communities. They don't advertise it too much because there's a lot of blowback. People start throwing rocks at you, your family, once they realize this is what you've done. And those of us who've stood up and publicly been yelling about it for a long time, I organized our first, our second conference in 2001 out here in Colorado. And there have been other conferences and summits and teacher and teacher trainings and workshops all over the internet since. Um, there are many families who are experiencing the joy and the, the sovereign reality an economic stability that comes with living this lifestyle. It is real. It is reality. And I look forward to the day when more families understand this before they even get married, before they even have their babies. You can do this too. So I've been talking what? I'm just getting tired of talking. There's more to say, but... I think I'll end on this note because I really am tired and I need to do some other things. As I have healed from my own abuse, um, grasping back my sexuality, living autonomously from psychiatry, pushing back on medications, standing up for myself publicly, both in my family and on the internet, which has resulted in me being an outlier from my parents and siblings and their kids. I have certain nieces and nephews I've never even met. And I mourn my relationships with not only my immediate family, parents and siblings, but also my extended family, many of whom will not talk to me, even though I've reached out to them at various occasions. Um, They've all stood publicly with my dad. That There's no way he could have done anything inappropriate. And Jenny's just crazy. And honestly, it was the, the willingness of my own mom 
to say that I was suffering from false memory syndrome and encouraging everyone to read Elizabeth Loftus' book of defamation against all of us who have suffered these things. Um, it's that treatment by my own loved ones and saying that all of my claims are just evidence of serious mental illness that compelled me. It's like I didn't even have a choice. That once I heard the attorney in Utah who's been identified as being a potential pedophile, cannibal, Satanist, he claimed that the victim in the case that was dismissed without prejudice was suffering from mental illness. Once I heard him say that, and I watched his press conference the day after he gave it, uh, there was this fury that overtook my heart. And I just said, this, this is going to be addressed. And it's going to be addressed by me. I'm going to confront it directly. I don't know what's going to happen or if they're going to kill me for this, but I am going to stand publicly with these victims. And so I did. And like I said, I don't know what's around the corner. I saw on Adam Herbert's Twitter the other day that, and this was also a news report from Utah, that uh, the Utah Sheriff's Office in Provo County has, you know, said there have been over 120 victims who've come forward since asking for more evidence. And they had 10 or 12 people call who started to talk but burst into tears and hung up before they could make a report as additional witnesses. And they said in this news report, this case is not being dismissed. It's still being investigated. And that gave me hope because it had been really, really quiet for a couple of weeks. And I thought, my gosh, they're, they're shutting it down. They're shutting it down. Nobody's talking about it. So I was thrilled to hear that. I think that report went out last week sometime. I don't know if I have the heart to keep covering it. I did my six weeks. It's captured. It's on my Substack, Jenny Hatch at Substack.com. I did put it behind a paywall because I have ongoing costs associated with my Dropbox fees and my WordPress fees. And so if anybody wants to donate to that Substack, again, it's JennyHatch.Substack.com. Uh, 30 bucks a year, you can go in there and read all of the evidence that was covered by mainstream journalists and indie journalists and me. And uh, this includes detailed articles, all the victim statements. I broke down the videos. There were 28 video and audio files. I uploaded all of them to my Substack and shared a clip from each so you could get a feel for what it was. And then you can clip over to, click over to Dropbox and watch the rest of it. Um, it's all there. It's all captured and I'm not going to delete it, but I don't, I, even though in the early days I said, I'm going to cover this every day until every pedophile is tucked away. I don't know that I can do that. It's been very, very stressful. And I don't know how much more stress my body can take in doing that work. So I would call for other activists, journalists, anyone who's interested, other victims who also want to stand up to this thing 
to go ahead and add your voice, add your story to what's already out there. I had several victims contact me privately and thank me for what I was doing. And I asked all of them, do you want to come on my podcast? Do you want to share your story? And it was a solid no. These people are scared and they do not want to go public with their stories yet. But I would challenge you who have a story, if you feel like you can do it, first and foremost, report it to the police. Don't go to your clergy member or your friend or whoever, or an activist like me and tell you, go to the police, report it. And then if you can, tell your story in your own way. You can just make a little YouTube video on your phone. Add your story to the mix so that together we can be a chorus singing about what happened to us. And then we can get some justice. I'm so proud of those 120 people who've contacted the police just around this specific case. I don't feel like I can report much beyond the sexual abuse that I experienced because I don't have any evidence. These people will stop at nothing to hide evidence and shut it down. They will kill their own children and grandchildren to cover up. Heck, they will kill themselves to cover up. So if you feel like you can find the courage and the wherewithal to write a couple of personal statements about what happened to you and get them online, even if you do it anonymously, Go ahead and add your voice to the chorus. That would be my challenge to you today. And if you can't, that's okay too. I, I definitely hit my breaking point in terms of stress. I don't have any more to give beyond this podcast. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to be interviewed or have somebody come poking and prodding and digging around in my background, in my brain, to find out if, the, if this is real. The only reason I went on Nathan's podcast is because he had so tenderly and kindly interviewed other victims on his show. People like Fiona Barnett and uh, other SRA victims. He had them on his show and he was thoughtful and kind and he listened. And most importantly, he believed what they were saying to the point where he saw that there was this pattern of what had happened to all of us. And it was a pattern that was happening all over the country and frankly, all over the world. And so I agreed to go on Nathan's show and he asked because I knew that he would, he would be kind. And at the end of the day, <laughs> uh, when you've already been so messed with by your family and the people around you as a little child, you just want to be around people who are kind and who love you. That's it. You know, just kind. So I'm going to close down this podcast. Like I said, I don't plan to ever talk about it again. If you found it, if it's touched your heart, that's why I took the time to do this today. I want you to know that I believe you. I've experienced it too. And I believe you can heal. I'm healing. I think I'm pretty close to being healed. I had one therapist tell me 
that when my body finally was able to dump all this excess fat, that that would be the, the sign that I was truly well. So I think I'm still probably like a good hundred pounds overweight. But when, when my body is able to just reconcile, I believe the weight will go. It's funny that therapist, I, I started meeting with him in 2001 around the death of my brother. And he, um, he was a member of my, my church and somebody I truly love. He and his wife both, just dear friends. But I remember talking to him. And at that point, all I was remembering was the family pattern, incest and sexual abuse. And he said, you know, I, I have no problem dealing with patients like you, Jenny, because, you know, it's, it's the ritual stuff that really bakes my noodle and messes with me. I'm just... It's really hard to deal with ritual abuse. And I remember saying out loud, well, you don't have to worry about that for me because you know, none of that ritual stuff happened to me. <laughs> Famous last words, right? That was 2001. And it wasn't until 10 years later in 2011 that the, the ritual abuse started to engulf my brain. And I was compelled to, you know, when you have a symptom like that, the nightmares and the waking nightmares and the dogs of memory and all the flashes of insight, um, your body is communicating with you. It's sending you a message saying, look, this is important. I want you to take a look at this. I want you to notice what happened. And I believe it's better to listen to your body than to cover up your symptoms with drugs and therapy and addictions and what have you. When you respect the wisdom, the inherent wisdom of your body saying, okay, you are now solidly in your 40s. You are mature. Your children are mostly out of their early childhood. You are in a solid place with your marriage and your relationships. Now is the time. Now is the time to heal this and face this. Um, when you respect that wisdom of your own body, that it knows how much it can handle, how much it can process. I believe that's when true healing occurs. And through these past 10 years, as I've reconciled layer after layer after layer of, of trauma, it's not like it was 24 hours a day that I'm, okay, I'm white knuckle reconciling. No, for an hour here or there, I would excuse myself from my family, go into my bedroom, do some deep breathing, meditation, singing. I would place essential oils around my various reflex points for my brain. I love lavender. But I also used Young Living's White Angelica, which is a protecting oil, harmony, joy, valor. And then I love doTERRA's oils. Uh, I used Young Living early on because that was the company I was affiliated with. But later on, I got into doTERRA and their emotional oils, Elevation, all of these oils were incredibly powerful for bringing calm, helping to help me think clearly, nourishing my blood. When oils go on your skin, they immediately get absorbed into your bloodstream. They move beyond the blood-brain barrier. They oxygenate, they heal, they, they calm in ways that the drug industrialists claim that the psychiatric meds give you this effect. They claim it. And I suppose for some patients, it appears to their family and friends, oh, look at how calm they are. They're not crazy anymore. They're healing. No, they have had a Band-Aid put on a gaping wound that could heal 
if it was given a nod, if there was acknowledgement, yes, these traumas that I'm having nightmares about are real. These things really happened to me. When you get to that place of acknowledging and, and looking at it squarely, this is what happened to me. My family was involved. Some of my loved ones and friends were involved. A teacher at my school was involved. Loving people from my church were involved. What the heck? You know, you have these feelings of just loss and betrayal. And, you know, as all of that overwhelms your soul, you know, you can feel just like, I can't live anymore. I can't be around this. There was one time I, I could feel myself about to tip over into insanity. I could feel it in my mind, this wanting to flee and go to a safe space. And when the mentally ill lose themselves in another identity, maybe they think they're somebody famous or, you know, there's all the old joke about, oh, he thinks he's George Washington or, or whatever. In their mind, that is a safe space for them to inhabit. It's much safer than being themselves. But in this moment, when I felt like I was about to truly lose my mind again, my husband came busting into our bedroom with his, with his guitar. He didn't say anything. He just looked me right in the eyes and he started singing to me. All of our favorite songs, just singing. And it was the music and the love of my husband that kept me from falling over the cliff into insanity. I could feel it. It was like he was calling to me, Jen, don't leave me. Stay here. It's going to be okay. And it was the music and the energy and the love that won that day. So this is my witness. This is my testimony. I pray that you can find healing and solace. I'm not inviting any more people to come onto my podcast and tell me their story. I'm not going to do any more journalism around this. I don't think I can. But what I have offered with this podcast, with my interview with Nathan, with all the things you will find on my Substack and on my healthyfamilies.life blog, in a post called No More Secrets, I put all the files, all the video links. If you feel like you can stomach it, go read the testimonials from these other survivors who share intimate details of the torture they experienced to program them, gaslight them, and mess with them while they were little children. And then perhaps you'll find some additional reconciliation around your own trauma, especially if you're a person of faith, especially, frankly, if you're a Mormon. I personally think the members of my faith, especially the musical members of my faith have been the ones targeted the most. That's just my gut feeling. All right. Thanks for stopping by. I hope you have a great day.